Welcome back to Why Does Peter Sink? We're going to go through part three of the series titled About Uranus. We all love a showdown scene. We want to see the good guy stare down the bad guy and see who flinches first. In this case, in Jerusalem with Pilate and Jesus, we all know who is who, but what each person represents goes all the way to the top, meaning beyond this world and into the heavens. Jesus facing Pilate is the flesh version of the true God versus Zeus. And we can see the stark difference between these worldviews in this brief interaction. This is like the face-off of two opposing forces coming to a climax, as Abraham started this path toward the showdown long ago. One of them, one of them will be revealed as a fraud. The backstory of the showdown starts way back with Abraham, so <clears throat> we need to backtrack a long ways and talk about him. The reason Israel is so strange and so hated is because they believe that the one true God was never defeated. That is the reason they do not fit in with others. And let me qualify this, however, because in the Bible, the nation of Israel is constantly falling into the worship of many gods. The draw of the world around them is strong, so it's incorrect to suggest that there was this group of people walking in lockstep, arm in arm, from Abraham onward. Within the people of Israel, there was a subset of people that kept the faith from Abraham to Mary. There always remained some percentage, some handful of devout people who kept faith in the one God, even when the chips were way, way down. Within that special line, even many of them faltered. They strayed, some further than others. Uh, and that's because they're all sinners, of course. But um, this is the true underdog story because this journey took nearly 2,000 years in order to get to Jesus and get to this moment of Pilate and Jesus in the showdown. And this whole story is full of twists and turns and progress and backtracking, two steps forward, one step back, all of that. So this leads me up to the idea of a chosen people, and quote, chosen people, which always seems so odd, if not arrogant. So to think that God had selected a group of people as chosen rankled me or just confused me, I think, uh, because like everyone outside of a group, it's irritating to be among the unchosen. Being unchosen simply uh, seems to imply that you are a member of a group called the damned, the not chosen, you're going to hell. And this upsets people. It upsets people. Being told you're going to burn in hell because of who you are is like hitting someone with a pie in the face and not a fresh apple pie but like a fresh cow pie right in the mouth. So if you hear a message that makes you feel lesser or makes you feel maybe damned, anger is probably this response. It's, it's the proper response. Um, it can be enraging to hear that. No one wants to hear about their inability to be saved because of the family he belongs to or what nation he lives in or what language he speaks or what skin color he is or who he was married to or that he's done something in the past that cannot be forgiven, or holds a belief that puts him into this uh, damned category. It's, uh, if someone is telling you that they are chosen, but you are not chosen, that puts up a wall, a very thick wall. And if you are not chosen, then you are not equal, not worthy, and not good enough. Maybe you even feel that you are somehow bad without any possibility of fixing or altering the situation. And now this is getting dangerously close to the correct answer of why we need a savior 
But for now, let's stick with this idea or this problem of being chosen or unchosen. So the unchosen person feels attacked. And the best way to stop an attack is to counterattack. Newton's third law of motion applies well to the ego in terms of equal and opposite reactions when you start claiming chosen status. So on the outside looking in, the idea of being self-declared as the chosen people seems like you seems like a move that Jack kind of made on the island in The Lord of the Flies, but you have to look closer at this situation with the nation of Israel in the Bible. Our pride rises up against the idea of being left out. Today, we, you'll hear the, the acronym FOMO, fear of missing out. That's something parents uh, have a lot and they need to get their kids involved in everything because they have this fear of missing out. Um, anyone that claims a special status will have outsiders react in several ways. The outsiders will either want to join them, they may want to reject them, or they may want to destroy them. Everyone feels this sense of rejection in some area of life and attempting to make peace in our heart, we must find a group or an ideology that includes us. Atheists and non-believers feel rejected because they are told they are not saved, quote, saved, which sounds like another way of saying chosen. Surely, we have all seen believers use this idea of being saved like a trophy, uh, and it often chases more people away from the tent rather than bringing them in. But Abraham and his people had a reason for being called chosen that is different from what we think of today as saved. Abraham is said to have been called to leave his home by God. He becomes a nomad in old age, leaving his home. And why does he leave? Because he doesn't fit in. Everyone at the party in his hometown is drinking from the cup of the moon god, and he cannot take a drink without betraying his conviction that there is only one god. There is a parallel here to being called out into the wilderness like many other great figures, like Jesus, for example, who spent 40 days in the desert, John the Baptist, who was always in the desert, out in the wilderness, Moses leads the people out of Egypt into the desert, St. Benedict, uh, flees society, he, he retreats, goes away, um, begins like the monasteries and all these, or St. Anthony of the desert. I mean, his, of the desert is in his name. He's called out. They're not in civilization because they can't be there. They have to leave it in order to, to practice their faith. Um, Genesis just mentions this casually, I feel like, but Abraham is called away from the place he lives because his people do not worship the one God. His hometown worships an idol, and due to his belief, he separates and excludes himself from the mainstream. He does this not because he wanted to be left out, not to be alone, not because he wanted to be a nomad and start hurting animals and wandering all over, but because the worldview he held required that he evacuate the city or be swallowed up by it. He has chosen to worship the one God, and because of this, he can't live among those people. I'll do my best to explain what I mean by this. I think the hard question really is this, is how could any group think they were special? And were they not humans like the rest of us? And the answer, of course, is yes. Yes, they were just ordinary people. Abraham was an ordinary man who ate and slept and committed sins like any other person. But he made a choice to believe something that no other people believed. If you believe in the creation and rebellion stories of Genesis in the one God who defeated all uh, contenders for the title belt, 
then you must reject the wider world of idols. And this is the situation the Old Testament covers in detail. The reason the wagons are circled in the, old, in the entire Old Testament is not because the Israelites enjoy or seek conflict. The conflict seeks them. The wagons are circled because they are the only culture hanging on to the idea of a single God. They are the sole believers that the one true God existed before everything else. They alone believe that the first being was never defeated. Every other people around them has granted assent to the death of a primordial god or gods and now have lesser gods for everything. Creating a club may cause an angry reaction among those uninvited, but a guaranteed way to animate hatred is to tell someone that their god is fake. Telling your neighbor that their way of life is false makes for fighting words. Uh, like Merle Haggard said, they're walking on the fighting side of me. That, that's how you get punched in the eye, by telling someone that their meaning of life is not true. It's garbage. It's fake. But as anyone knows who holds a dear belief or conviction, there is no way to preserve that belief or way of life unless you are willing to proclaim that belief and then live out that way of life. Otherwise, you are just a fan or a hobbyist. It's easy to click the like button and call yourself a believer in something. It's much harder to put down the phone and take action. If you declare a belief but don't take action, then you probably don't really believe it. You're a tourist or, or maybe just opinionated. If you truly have a conviction in the belief, then you cannot just fit in with everyone else who doesn't hold the belief. Uh, the only way for the Hebrews to fit in with the pagan world around them was to abandon their belief in the one God, and it's the same today. Um, in order to fit in with a culture that denies God, you have to, um, you'd have to deny it as well, or just laugh it off. Um, and what that does is it instantly discredits and devalues the one God. So in terms of faith in the one true God, everyone else on planet Earth other than the Israelites has already done that. They've already said they don't believe that. The kind of situation, this kind of situation is not foreign to our own experiences. We've all felt peer pressure. Anyone who's been to high school or college parties may have been in this dilemma, and at some point everyone is. Uh, or maybe a boyfriend or a girlfriend put you, put you in this dilemma where you had to make a choice that tested your beliefs, something you did or did not want to do. Uh, maybe you, obviously, eventually we do it to other people. We pressure them. So, um, for example, no child has ever said that they would someday like to be addicted to drugs. Children know this is a bad idea. They know drugs is a bad idea. But someday that child will grow up and be in a room at a party uh, where everyone is partaking in something they have sworn to never do. And only then will that grown child find out if what they declared is true or false. And the same can be said for drinking, where a child will, will say, I will never get drunk. But someday at a party, there will be a chance uh, they'll find them. Um, they'll be able to find out if what they said was true. Um, as a plastic solo cup is either nudged at them or offered to them, and they'll be urged to take a drink. They'll be told, everyone does it. It's no big deal. Um, don't be such a stick in the mud. Trust me, you'll enjoy it. Or it's so freeing. There's all kinds of arguments. There's a thousand ways to make it. Um, I've made those arguments to people. And um, when I was the one being pressured, I pretty much said, let's do a keg stand. So, um, you know, you find out what you really believe or what you're going by your actions. 
the prosecution in these situations makes its case through temptation to fit in and have fun, and the defense sits at rest with your past declaration of belief as the argument. In the end, the person will make his decision and either drink or not drink. If the person decides to reject the offer, they, they've chosen a harder path because it often means being alone for that night. Um, by rejecting the offer, uh, he is himself rejected. But that is the price of having convictions and, and beliefs that you actually carry out. The reject has to leave the party because he doesn't fit in. He has to find new friends or a new party, something else to do. To fit in can mean giving in and accepting something that you cannot do without betraying your beliefs. But you will not betray uh, his word if you have real conviction. So that's the thing with, um, with faith and especially with Israel. So um, there's a lot to think about with this, but we all can sort of see this scenario and experiences of our own life. Um, Abraham then, to bring it back to Abraham, is where the tide begins to turn he turns back against the grain, against the world. And of course, uh, maybe you've heard of Tupac's song, Me Against the World. Um, Tupac in that video should have had Abraham uh, herding some sheep or something because uh, even though they lived 4,000 years apart, Abraham really, really could have said, it's just me against the world. And I don't know that we'll be talking about Tupac in 4,000 years, but we will likely still be talking about Abraham. When people wonder why the common denominator in biblical wars and squabbles is Israel, um, it's because of this belief. They do not bend or conform to the gods and the idols around them. The moment that they do that, then they have abandoned the one God. So whether it's the gods of Sumerian, Egyptian, or Greco-Roman culture, they must reject them all. They don't give up their belief for anyone or anything right up until today, actually, and whether it's modern paganism or Christianity or Islam or atheism, they are still holding that belief, and obviously not all of them. Um, there's difference, differences within the group, which I'll talk about again later, but uh, this, this hatred remains today against the Jews and Israel because they still won't bend in their faith and conform. They stick to their tradition. Uh, there is a same loathing for Christians and it's been rising for some time in America for the same reason as they refuse to just fit in with the culture. Because the moment you change your beliefs to fit the culture, then you have no beliefs. You're, you're just like everyone else. There's nothing set apart about you. And this is what drives non-believers crazy because they think, why can't these people just get with the program? Why can't they just fit into the culture? And the answer is very simple. They reject the program because the program rejects the one true God, and that is the one thing that the believers cannot reject. Believer, believers argue it the other way, wondering why the culture, the program, can't just believe in the one true God. So you see the problem. It's this wall, it's impossible to cross because they both have to abandon their core belief. There's a bizarre scenario in here that I have to go into briefly. Uh, some Christians hate the Jews, and we have ample historical evidence of that, obviously. Um, this should really baffle anyone with even a modest understanding of salvation history, because without the people of Abraham, the Savior would never have arrived. And even though 
his execution came through um, that group of people. It also came through the Gentiles or the Romans and uh, because uh, Pilate was the only one who could actually give an order for execution. So for anyone to say it was just them, it seems a little ridiculous. Uh, and the real point here I'm trying to make is Jesus could not have come from any other group of people for the exact reason that all other peoples had rejected the idea of one God. So if the one God is going to come through any people, it's the people that worship the one God. It just makes sense. It's fitting. And, um, you know, why God has chosen to do these things in certain ways, of course, we don't know exactly, but it's fitting that he did it that way. Uh, even within the nation of Israel itself, the Savior had to come through a very specific line of people because they, for the most part of this line of people, stuck with faith in the one true God. Through one set of people alone could Jesus have come into the world as they were chosen because they chose God. They kept the faith. And this is why Christians who hate Jews make no sense at all to me. As without the old covenant and line from Abraham to David to Jesus, there is no salvation for us. As Paul says, we would still be in our sins. Um, but I need to stay on track here, though, because this is the big moment. Uh, this, is, this is what I'm really driving at right here. The whole point of the Bible... The whole point of the Bible is the story of bringing back worship to the one all-powerful creator, Big G God, in order to rescue us from the world of many gods. After the Tower of Babel story, the world was pagan and polytheistic. The rest of the Bible is the return of the king. It's the return of the one God. That is the overarching story of the Old and New Testaments. So whenever you, you go get stuck in a single line of Old Testament violence or uh, like I talked about the boiling goats and its mother's milk kind of thing, um, when you get stuck in those things, you, you have to recall the big picture of this. The big picture uh, is, is, is about this restoration of, of the true God uh, because you can easily miss the forest for the trees if you start um, looking at uh, individual stories or individual lines even, and that's what people do on the internet. You get all these lists and people pull out one line here and one line there and, and they see these things that are violent or confusing or ancient culture uh, baggage and you get so focused on that you completely miss uh, the point of the whole book. Um, and of course the Bible is many books put together so you have to see it over the arching, the, the overarching story, the whole point. Um, so in the Old Testament, starting with Abraham, the one true God is worshipped and defended. That's Abraham's thing. In the New Testament, the one true God returns to glory, bringing an end to the world of false gods, all for the sake of rescuing us. This happens through a very specific process of selection from Abraham all the way to Mary. And it's important to remember how focused and targeted this selection of people really is. The story narrows and narrows toward one woman. Clearly, the whole nation of Israel did not gather in Mary's room during the Annunciation and consent to Gabriel together. No, only Mary said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. May it be done to me according to thy will. She was chosen by God from the chosen people, but this selection, this precision laser targeting, had to come through the only people on earth who believed in the one God. Could it have happened otherwise? Of course, God can do whatever he wants, but he didn't. This is one of the mysteries of God's ways. And while the rational brain wants to re rebel at this idea, 
it is truly fitting that God chose to rescue us in the way that he did. Uh, were there other people in the world who, who believed in the one true God? Possibly, yes. We, we don't know. Um, there are no known groups of one God peoples. So just as Abraham has chosen God, it seems that God really also has chosen Abraham. There is at least one other man who worships the one God, as we see in this cameo appearance from this priest king named Melchizedek, which I'm going to talk about later. Uh, Melchizedek just shows up to bless Abraham. But aside from Melchizedek, the world seems completely empty of people that worship one God. There's a sense that God is dead by the time you reach the end of chapter 11 in Genesis. Um, and the whole Bible after that, after chapter 11 in Genesis, is about the restoration of God through this unique line of believers, which is why Abraham is so important to all three of the major religions of the world today, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, all who have a single one true God. Of course, um, Christianity has the Trinity. Um, it's a different concept, but there is one God um, for the three major religions. The path to salvation returns via Abraham and his dedication to the one God. So for Christians, this beginning by Abraham is fulfilled in Mary, mother of Jesus, mother of God. Jesus, of course, is literally the God-man. He's the son of God. He's the son of man. He's the incarnation of God. He's fully human and fully divine. So Jesus is the one true God in human form. And that's why we worship him. So, of course, the irony is that after all the wars and the setbacks, uh, the, the Israelites' journeys in the deserts, their time in captivity, uh, staggering hardships. Only some of the Jews convert and join the, the apostles, and many of the chosen people do not choose to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. But in reading the Old Testament, this is hardly anything new or even surprising. The chosen people stray from the one God in nearly every book of the Old Testament. And being a member of the Israelites, or even being of the line of Judah or David, or even being a cousin of Mary wouldn't necessarily mean you have chosen to believe in the one true God. And so it also will not mean that everyone will just suddenly convert to Christianity. Uh, having a social security card in America doesn't mean you love America. It just means you're in the tax system. So where you live doesn't dictate your faith, even though many nations have tried that and still try to force feed it uh, today. And all countries do this. It's not just Saudi Arabia or Iran or Cuba or China. Every nation demands a kind of faith or it wouldn't stand. Um, some just force the narrative a little harder than others. So every Hebrew had free will. Every, uh, everyone in Jesus' time had free will, uh, just as we have free will today. None of that changed. That's the same. We are the same people. Um, people of ancient times were not homogenous in their beliefs. They were not one giant blob of uniform ideas. But we tend to think of them like that. Um, you hear this a lot when people talk about these groups. The same goes for the Romans or, uh, or, or Sumerian, whatever, whoever you're talking about. Um, clearly, there were virtuous pagans, as Dante calls them in his journey through hell. In fact, Virgil, the Roman poet who lived before Jesus, uh, is his guide through hell because he was considered this virtuous person. And you can find loads of writing on virtue from Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus and Cicero and Virgil and Plato and Socrates and many others. So it's absurd to pretend that all, um, all uh, Greeks or Romans were 
uh, were these like worship, uh, worshiping idols and acting really poorly all the time. But um, it's also absurd to pretend that all Israelites would just lay prostrate daily before the one God. Um, and then on the same time, you could pretend that like the Egyptians all, uh, or I'm sorry, the, the Romans or Greeks like ate their children like Saturn or something. It's, it's just, it's not accurate. And it's not uh, fair to even lump everyone in together. They're not like store-bought milk and they were all uh, by some high-pressure machine forced through some small strainer, so they're exactly the same. They're just like us today. You can see the differences of opinion in the United States uh, over just about everything. Um, so they were just like us, they, with some being more devout and others being less devout. And surely some other Israelites not did, probably didn't believe at all, I'm sure. Um, otherwise, you wouldn't have a real world that <laughs> we live in. So for a specific example in our world, uh, you could go from one end of a city and find a very strict Catholic church that the Pharisees might even find homey. And then you could go to the other end of town of the city and find a church that appears to be unaware of many doctrines of the church altogether. Yet, both would consider their parish to be fully Catholic and part of the mother church. There is gray area between churches, just like there is between people, and, uh, but specific statements of faith are non-negotiable, such as that there is only one God, and for Catholics plus everything else in the Nicene Creed. What I'm getting at is that faith cannot be forced among the chosen or the unchosen people, um, and even among the devout believers, there can be significant differences of what devout actually means. And I should just say here that, of course, faith is a gift. It's not something you can force no matter what you do. Uh, you have to ask for it, pray for it, and it will, you will receive it. It's uh, amazing, actually. Uh, to, break out, to break this all out of uh, religious terms, just consider um, a rewards card at your local gas station or grocery store. Having a rewards card doesn't mean you love the gasoline or the groceries from that store. You may get gas and groceries daily from that store, but you really have no loyalty to it. You, may, you might have just signed up for the rewards card because of a discount or because it's close to your house, but whatever the reason, you are now a member. And the moment a better deal arrives, you may just dump that rewards card. So membership is not a good indicator of belief. It can be a mere matter of convenience or mutual benefit or tradition or dumb luck. I will say, however, that I have met some very devout Costco members, making it seem like a religion almost for some people. But membership does not equate to conviction. Likewise, the chosen people have many members that wander into other religions of the surrounding cultures. Um, that's the Israelite, that's what's happening in the, in the books of the Bible of the Old Testament repeatedly. So the Israelites may keep their rewards card for when it helps them, but the stories of the Old Testament has many, many instances where the Israelites get, shop, get caught shopping with their pagan rewards card over at like Baal's Golden Mini Mart. So they're, they're sneaking off to the other side, um, not really sticking with the one God. St. Paul had uh, rewards cards. He had uh, membership and citizenship in both the Jewish and Roman worlds. And this is what helped him get his trial moved to Rome, but it didn't spring him from jail. And no, the, the verdict was death for him because he had joined a third club and the new club essentially offered joy in this life and eternal joy in the afterlife. Um, it was a very different kind of club and one that ultimately got him beheaded. And it's a, it's a, this rewards club can bring a lot of anger upon its members. Uh, that one's called Christianity. So <clears throat> many, um, 
All right, let's move away from that topic for a minute. Many Jewish people did not join the new faith. They didn't join the, uh, the same club of St. Paul uh, since they did not believe the Messiah had come. They thought he was still going to come. This has led to so much confusion and anger over the past two millennia, which is, uh, of course, very uncharitable to say the least, um, and led to downright horrific cruelty. So many Christians seem to forget the story is not over. So we are in the messianic age now, the final age. That's what Jesus said. In this age, we are to love God and love one another and do God's will by keeping his commandments. That's just good advice always, whether you're talking about friendship or marriage or, or, um, or anything. You love God, love one another, keep his commandments, do those three things. Uh, we do not know the time when the end will come. We're in this last age, but we don't know the time. So we can safely ignore the claims of end times authors and apocalyptic highway billboards who proclaim that uh, they have cracked the code. The, the Bible code was cracked so many times. I remember walking through Barnes and Nobles and bookstores and um, the Bible code. And there's the, you know, I finally see what's Revelation's all about. And now it's going to happen. It was 2012. There was the year 2000. Um, it's kind of funny as you get older, you see these various apocalypse. Um, and end days and they come and go and you realize that um, we don't know all we can do is prepare without knowing because the day will come when God decides the day has come not when any person has predicted and this is very plain to see in the gospel when it says for just as lightning comes from the east and is seen as far as the west so will the coming of the son of man be in other words it will happen so fast that we will not be able to repent when that day arrives. If you think of when you see lightning in the sky, what you could have done before you saw that lightning, th the answer is nothing. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second. That is too fast for you to uh, squeeze in one last confession or uh, Hail Mary, Our Father, whatever your preferred um, last five minutes of your life prayer might be. It's too late. Um, that's why I feel that the doomsday preppers, they may want to stop hoarding canned goods and then maybe stop stockpiling bullets. And instead, they would be more wise to pray and give to the poor. Uh, I would give the canned goods to the poor. I mean, not um, no one can get any nourishment from bullets. So, um, you know, the bullets aren't going to save you in the end. That's what they think that it's going to do, just like people think their um, 401k number was going to do. Um, they, they're looking for salvation in these things that ultimately are not going to save them. I remember a fidelity ad years ago where people were walking around carrying a big green sign and each had their number of how much money they had in the bank. And they were uh, all thinking about this number all the time. And the sign they were carrying was obviously symbolic of their safety net. <clears throat> um, and yes, it's, it's good to save, but it's not going to save you uh, in, when, it, when it really matters. Uh, each person's salvation is for that individual to work out with fear and trembling, just as my own is. Uh, the saying among addicts or, or ex-drinkers is to, they say, worry about keeping my own side of the street clean. So that is good advice for a store owner and a spiritual person. Um, if I judge anyone, I have immediately lost a sense of humility. Pride is a very difficult thing to cage. There are, there are two important factors here. Um, one, the story's not over. We're in the third act. Um, the end will come and we don't know when. And second, it's not for me to hand out judgment 
as I am sorely in need of mercy, uh, more than just about anyone else probably. Uh, but as for the chosen people, it is enough for me to know that the old covenant was not revoked by the new covenant and that God's will for them will be done just as it is for the rest of us. So I defer on things like this to the authority of the church, which I believe has spent 2,000 years um, working out these problems with people who think about these things far more than I do. Um, if you're looking for something about it, there's catechism line, uh, paragraph 121, and there's some sections about what happens to the chosen people and the, you know, in the end. Um, so obviously that is for thinkers beyond this um, low budget podcast. So, okay, by the time you get through the thousand pages from Genesis to the Gospels, you might think that's the end, but it's not. We are just in the third act now waiting for the finale, for the climax to happen, around which there is much disagreement and speculation. Um, if you're interested in more about like Israel, the church, and the end, like the end times, there's an article from Jimmy Aiken on um, Catholic Answers that has a really good uh, <laughs> insight into it, as Jimmy Aiken always does. If you've ever listened to his podcast, Mysterious World, it's fascinating. Um, it approaches everything from the twin perspectives of reason and faith, which is, a, which is how we should approach everything, I guess. But anyway, um, so as I mentioned earlier, the heroic tales of ancient Greece, they read like persuasive arguments for justifying the way of life chosen by the empires of the age when Jesus was alive. You might say the stories tell the journey of the people of Zeus, uh, the people who chose Zeus. So when you look at the opposing stories in this way, um, the idea of the chosen people of Israel makes more sense because the only reason God chooses Abraham is because he has chosen God. They are like, um, they're together. Every city-state around where Abraham lives has chosen some other god. So they've the story. The chosen people of Zeus are the Greeks. Um, you know that's they. If you want to look at it that way, that's what how the choices have gone. And this is a, a big deal because again, it's the big picture of the entire Bible. Um, so when the nations turned away from God, whenever that was, you know, the Tower of Babel is is telling the story that that. They turned away from God, like Cain kills Abel, people are at each other's throat, and then eventually nations are at each other's throat. Um, so that, that happened. Well, when that happened, God didn't lose any actual power. The story of salvation in the Bible is a big, wide turn back to the one true God, to the true power of God and not the power of these objects, like in Lord of the Flies with the conch and the pig head on a stick. Um, God was never defeated but was only defeated in our minds and hearts. The rebellion against God failed in heaven, but we simple humans turned away um, or were turned away by um, spirits that were guiding us. So failing to overthrow God, the fallen spirits will instead attack us creatures, which that's us, we are the creatures. Um, these spirits are watching us and they're watching us just sit there now and watch Netflix and sports all night um, as we have once again become distracted from the one God. It's like uh, used to power and money and all that was great before, and now it's just entertainment. Uh, now the Spirit only has to suggest to us, play next episode, and we choose to click a button in the affirmative, allowing us to space out and pay homage to this TV God in our living room for you know another three hours. Um, 
that's that's the uh, funny thing. These little suggestions, like play next episode, is one of those things where you're actually being nudged, and uh, it's it's you're making a choice whenever you say yes, I'd like to watch the next episode, and uh, we don't really think about it, and that's the whole point. Um, all right, back to Abraham, Israel, and the gang. So all nations and peoples have turned away except for Israel. I know I've said that a thousand times. Um, even the chosen people struggle to keep this single truth alive of the one God, the all-powerful God, uh, as they suffer repeated and constant temptations and do battle with the worldly influences around them. Not only do they have to fight this battle spiritually, but they literally fight to the death for this belief, which is why there's so much bloodshed in the Old Testament. People consider the Israelites as these warmongers without considering that they are under constant duress for this polar opposite worldview to every people and nation that surrounds them. And survival in that environment requires a fight, a battle. Um, the alternative, of course, is surrender. But for them, the only surrender that can happen is to the one God, not to the other cultures who believe in false gods. The world tried to squash this one last final remaining culture that believed in the one God. They refused defeat and went to war and they slaughtered and they were slaughtered because this idea was worth keeping alive. I think that's what I failed to understand for a long time, that what the people of Abraham are fighting for is the very existence of the one true God in the hearts and minds of men and women. I so often mention that surrender is the key, but there is surrendering to the way of the world and there is surrendering to God. The surrender must not be to the world, but to God. The good news for those who love competition, and I'm looking directly at Americans when I'm saying this, is that when you surrender to God, you stop fighting your fellow men and women. So this may sound like rolling over and giving up, but there is a never-ending spiritual combat happening and that's all hands on deck all the time. The, and this combat is more intense and powerful than playoff football or the free market or presidential politics. Um, there's a book I linked to called Spiritual Combat, um, and it's a fascinating read. Uh, there's, yeah, just Google Spiritual Combat. You'll find the book. It's on uh, Tan Books or on Amazon. Anyway, the whole point of God choosing a people to restore faith in him is to point everyone back to the one God. So it's like an English pointer, the dog freezing stiff as a statue and lifting a paw to point to where the hunters need to go. And we're all seekers. We're all hunters for the truth, but we're easily distracted and confused. We ignore the pointing, thinking we'll get better directions from our phone or, or just by instinct. And that is how the fall happened and how we became scattered into many nations to begin with. <clears throat> the story of how we came to ignore the one God is fully covered in the falls of mankind that occur in Genesis, in chapters 1 through 11, and everything that comes after is the return of God to his rightful place, with the dramatic ending coming in those interactions between Caiaphas, Pilate, and Jesus in his trial. The, conspirator, the conspirators, they all take steps to separate themselves from the deed. So <clears throat> now if we're fast-forwarded back to thinking about Pilate. Uh, as, for, as for Pontius Pilate, he washes his hands with water, literally in front of the mob and tells the people, I am innocent of this man's blood. Look to it yourselves. And he's like, he's just putting it aside. He's putting it behind him. It's water under the bridge. Nothing to do with him. But he can't wash it off. He can't extract his role in the death of Jesus any more than Caiaphas, the high priest, can. Uh, because they are both stuck fighting in this pit. 
they're like uh, they're like at the same point of the Bible where Cain and Abel happened, where um, it's it's one on one, it's uh, man versus man, spy versus spy, everybody's fighting in the pit, and Jesus even tells Pilate actually one thing that's interesting. Um, Jesus tells Pilate that the one who handed him over is more guilty, and he's like he's implying that Caiaphas who handed him over it has more guilt than Pilate. Um, but Pilate's attempt to wash his hands of the verdict does not help him. Pilate is still guilty, if only slightly less than Caiaphas, who led the campaign to have Jesus killed. The blood on Pilate's hands sinks in like a tattoo. It's never coming out. So choices made long ago set Pilate's life in motion to lead him to the exact spot where he is presiding over the trial of Jesus. We are like that. The choices we make are leading us to spots where we can't just undo them or, or magically escape. Um, in fact, a lot of times we're trying to escape something else uh, and we're doing, we're doing actions that we would, should probably not be doing to thinking it will help us escape something when really what we're doing is we're painting ourselves into a corner. So once you have taken the wrong turn um, to think of a hiking trail, you often can't just quit the trail. You must go to the end, um, or so it, it seems. It seems like you, the, oh, the woods is too thick to cross over. Um, you could turn back, but that's so long to walk. Um, or you could walk ahead and it might bring you back to the trailhead, or maybe there is no trailhead now. Um, but to get on a different trail, it, it requires going backwards and choosing the right path. But if you're on the wrong trail and you realize it too late, starting over seems impossible. The pressures of the life you choose, it boxes you in. It, it takes you along. Um, what you, you choose to believe in um, makes your selections for you at some point. Sometimes there appears to be no way out, but, but that's the key. There is a way. There is a way out. So when you get to these points in your life where you're on the trail and you're like, I can never get out of this, I can't, you actually can get out of it. Um, you must be reborn. That's the thing. Um, it's like a video game character dies like in Jumanji and he, he's, he starts over. Um, but we can actually do that. You can be, you must become like a child again. I said this in one of the, talked about this quite a bit in one of the previous, um, episodes, but, um, you have to take up your cross and, 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 um, follow Jesus. And then you, you will become like a child again. It's this amazing, uh, experience that you have to ask for faith. You have to pray for faith. Um, pretty soon things start changing. Um, but Pilate, in this case, he doesn't have time for repentance during this trial. Like um, his, his entire life, to use that the painting ideas, he, his entire life has painted him into this corner. Um, Caiaphas clearly has no interest in being reborn. Uh, whereas you can sense this odd tension in Pilate, who's he's kind of like Nicodemus with his curiousness, um, nervousness, uh, wonder. He's, he doesn't know exactly what to make of Jesus. They both seem, both Nicodemus and Pilate, seem to want to ask Jesus for help, but they don't. Um, they, could, they could both be reborn. They could all be reborn and change their ways, but they won't. For Pilate, being reborn in the Spirit would probably mean he'd be killed by the Romans because he would be abandoning his duty to keep law and order. Um, but to be faithful to the one God, it requires rejection of all false gods. So Pilate, Nicodemus, and Caiaphas all love their own lives too much. That's actually what they really love. 
that's kind of their false god is their life of luxury and power. They can't change because they don't want to. Giving up their path seems too hard, so it's just easier to keep going, keep walking down this trail. And that's exactly how habitual sin works, where you, 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 uh, you think you, you want to just easily wash it off. Um, you can't just wish it away. You can't wash it. You can't wish it away. You can't stop doing it. You can't quit it. It requires a hard turn against the current, <clears throat> like Abraham did, in order to escape the false gods. He has to completely leave his hometown and become a desert or a wanderer um, in order to change his ways. And uh, eventually the sin you love the most, it will paint you into that corner where there is no help. And that is where you will get the chance to make the turn or you will just continue to do the wrong thing. Um, it's painful and it's scary, but it's so liberating once you do it. There's only one person who can extract you from the situation you walked yourself into. And all three of these people, Pilate, Nicodemus, Caiaphas, they reject the hand that offers help when they need it the most because their position on their tiny pedestal of power seems like too far to fall for their ego to survive. And they don't realize that it's exactly the ego that needs to fall and be shattered, um, like the conch on the rocks, I guess, um, in a way. Uh, uh, we won't go there. So Pilate's attempt to wash his hands and remove his involvement of overseeing this kangaroo court in Jerusalem, it fails miserably because to this day, a billion people utter his name every week when they recite the Nicene Creed right after the Sunday homily. Caiaphas actually got off pretty easy in that sense since we don't recite his name. But Pilate is a representative of a world that has chosen many gods over the one God. And it's probably safe to say that Pilate at the time of the trial would have found the idea of one God ludicrous. Uh, every culture in Pilate's time had bought into the belief that one true God didn't really exist. The saying, what is truth by Pilate suggests that um, it's just what he makes of it. There was a great Sopranos episode where Tony Soprano uh, talks about, you know, what is really true. He's kind of got this same uh, Pontius Pilate attitude and that, you know, if he says if you'd have grown up over somewhere in Asia, there would be a different God. And then if you grew up here, he has and Tony, of course, has is so addicted to habitual sin of his life that he has no understanding of the one true God at all. So the Sopranos has a lot of great moments, but it's it's uh, it's getting a little old now, I guess, but it's still a, uh, an interesting show just for those things, especially for if you're looking at it through the eyes of like a believer versus a non-believer where you might think of Tony as this badass. Um, and if you're if you're converted, you might see Tony as like this tragic character who's constantly making the same errors over and over. He's trapped just like Pilate. So as far as Pilate, um, after the trial is over, we don't really know what happens to him. There's, I've read a few things of speculation because it's interesting, like, wh what happened to him? Where'd he go? He was still governor. He was governor for 10 years in that area. Um, but they say he might have been executed. There's other th uh, ideas that he might have committed suicide. And there's another that he may have converted to be a follower of Jesus. Um, it, it sounds like er, the idea is that he died around 39 um, A.D., and so he, he died not long after Jesus, but the, his wife may have converted. And it, it's, I think, you know, the Eastern Orthodox Church, she's a saint. I believe Pilate is a saint in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. So 
uh, there's different, we don't, I don't know, I, th I feel like we don't really know. I just refer to the, the Catholic, uh, the view on it. So um, we don't really know he's not a saint in, in Catholic tradition. So as for Pilate, we just don't know. It's not really clear. But whatever his end, whatever happened to him, he played the role as the stand-in for the existing worldview, which ruled from the time of the Tower of Babel until the resurrection of Christ. The nations had created and bowed to fictitious gods for a very long time, but this interaction with Pilate is where the tide turned against the false gods for good.